Achtung, Achtung. Hier ist die Sendestelle Berlin im Voxhaus. Meine Damen und Herren, viele Schülerinnen vermissen. Welcome to Achtung History Series 2, The Watcher. Produced by the Berlin Tour Guide and presented by Simon J. James. Subscribe to the Arctum History Podcast on all major podcasting platforms and follow Arctum History on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Arctum History. Or visit theberlintourguide.com forward slash Arctum History for updates. If you wish to support Arctum History, you can do so through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Arctum History. This is The Watcher. Episode 8, Doubt. Fräulein Langens typed away at the paddles of the stenographic machine. Document and report. Every detail was to be taken down by the stenographer. It was not Fräulein Langens' job to choose what was to be noted down. Her job was to accurately record the conversation or interrogations that happened before her, to remain stoic and silent, to not pass judgment, and above all, remain indifferent in her reports. For people such as Ernst Gannat, the great detective who had reformed the murder commission from one of the wandering lines of questioning to a department that made use of all the latest technologies and scientific evidence, the objective details were important. However small, they might just make the case. So she sat as the man with the glass eye was brought into the room and placed before the large Gannat, the Buddha of Berlin. Gannat sat with inspector of the drug division of the Alex, Dr. Richter, and the criminal secretaries, Fräulein Korfers and Fräulein Stroher, that would represent the Prussian police if district councillor Dr. Leuventhal believed enough evidence, including the psychological reports gathered by criminal assistant Georg Rosser at the Kriegsversorgungsamt at the Bromibrucker was present to charge the war-wounded veteran watcher. Gannat was known for his success across the world. His patient and methodological wisdom had presented an almost unbelievable success rate in reaching criminal convictions through carefully compiled evidence rather than the brutality of the bulls brutality still used as a tool amongst the lesser crimes, lower in the Alex or in other police forces across the globe who preferred coercion. The use of torture to retain a confession from a suspected criminal had been abolished within Prussia on the ascension of Friedrich, son of Friedrich Wilhelm I, in 1740. Despite the fears of anarchy ensuing once the threat of torture had been removed from society, it had proven very successful in the reformation of the judiciary. Now over 180 years later, Ernst Gannat was reforming the criminal process further. Every piece of evidence had to be questioned again, and that is why the watchman Schultz sat before him once more. The question was over his movements on the Monday, the 12th of August, 1929, when the young Hildegard Zepanik, recently turned 11, had vanished only to be found four days later buried almost a metre down in the sandy ground of a cellar awaiting its cement floor in the Gilbao construction site at the corner of Westend Alley and Saxon Park. 
on the Monday in question, did you have any moments when you couldn't account for yourself? Schultz was asked. Both he, his wife, and his colleague, the other watchman Flada, had noted that he had, on previous occasions, blackened out or been found in strange places or even in the mists of convulsions upon the floor. On that Monday, I did not. I had no moments when I wasn't according to myself. After the workers had left, you collected wood, correct? I filled a backpack of it, of the chippings, not useful pieces, waste. Did you purchase anything on your way to work on that Monday? The newspaper, as I already said. I thought I'd stop to buy cigarettes and sweets as well, but that was on the Friday. I purchased two packs of Juno, ten of, for 80 fennigs, and two rolls of sweets for 10 fennigs each, orange drops and uh, peppermint drops, a pack of each. Schultz reaches into the clothes that he'd been dressed in whilst in custody for the last five days and produces a white box, square in nature and only half a centimetre thick, casually throws it onto the table. The italic and flowing script on the front spells, Juno. There, that's the pack I bought. All empty now, see? The other, the, the first pack, was thrown away when you brought me here. Have you ever given sweets to the children of Nori West End, Herr Schultz? I've never given anything, nothing, to the children at the building site. No sweets, chocolate, or anything similar. Yet yeah, it's possible I've given sweets to my own children. Were tools always laying around the building site? A change in the line of questioning. Yeah, once a kid with frizzy hair brought me a hammer one of the workmen had left outside of the fence, Schultz explained. And spades? Were they often left around? Spades? Yeah, I would find them in various places, scattered all over the building. You had access to them? Well, yeah, of course. But I had not instructions to pay attention to tools lying around. It was more important to the owners to protect the materials. But I'm going to expressly state that I had nothing to do with the girl's murder. Nothing to do. Absolutely nothing. He iterated and reiterated. Fräulein Langens, would you read back the transcript, please? Gennat asked. Fräulein Langens did as requested and stoically and matter-of-factly read back the interrogation from the strange stenographic script that was printed upon the paper that had rolled from the machine. Everything in order, Herr Schultz? The watcher was asked. Make sure you know it was Friday I purchased the cigarettes and the sweets, not, not Monday. It was definitely Friday, Schultz emphasized. Fräulein Langens noted. Very well. That will be all. Schultz was led from the room and back to the basement cell in which he had been held since his arrest on the suspicion of the murder of Hilda. For Gannat and the team, they had pressed for information and done their careful analysis of the site. The house file, the main file of the investigation, was growing, but for the hours and days of work that the Maud Commission officers of Quas, Werneberg, Rossa, the secretaries, the assistants, and the dog handlers, it was an apathetic file that led not to a solid conclusion of guilt upon the party of Schultz. The file in its detail of the discovery of the body of the raped and murdered girl, the alibis of everyone of the over 140 workers, led to one clear point, that nothing was clear. If the struggles to build a case based on observations and the piecing together of movements had not been difficult enough, there was also an added issue. 
that the murder commission Zepanik was entirely relying on those that Quas Werneberg and their investigators had spoken to. But when one seed of doubt is placed upon a statement, it begins to undermine much more. This doubt continued to spread when the mother of Erika Timmler, who had told Dittmar she had stood with Hildegard as Schultz had told them the stories of the war, of bombs and trenches, reported to the Maud Commission that Erika Timmler could no longer say that she was at the conversation, spreading certain doubt that it actually had taken place. And the mother herself requested not to attach too much strength to the statement, and when Hilda Gericke was asked over the Monday conversation of the war, she had no recollection of it. We must discount it then, must we not? Gnat had commentated. It brought the question forward of can a conviction be brought entirely on the statements of witnesses, even though no one had witnessed the child, Hildegard Zepernick, disappear. Nobody as far as the Maud Commission had discovered, seen anything. It was to District Councillor Leuventhal to now decide. The decision of Leuventhal came the next day. He was granting the arrest warrant for Schultz and charging him with the murder of Hildegard Zepernick. It wasn't a charge on evidence that he had done it, it was a charge on the evidence being that he was the only one that the murder commission and the prosecutors could determine could have done it. Not every case taken on by Ernst Gennat could be proven conclusively, but it had to be shown that everything had been done by Gennat and his team in the pursuit of a criminal conviction, and Schultz was the only logical culprit. No alibi, a history of mental illness, and blacking out and some character facts told by relatives that did not quite match was what had brought about the decision to charge Schultz with the murder. However, when it came to dealing with the press, the murder commission was transparent. In the morning edition papers on the Friday, a week after the discovery of the body and the incarceration of Schultz, the papers printed the news. The front cover that displayed the picture of a proposed model for the construction for an extension to the Reich's Chancellery, a building to be of large neoclassical proportions but bare from the frivolities of design, juxtaposed against the Rococo Palais that once belonged to the Radzivill family that had become the Chancery, first of the German Empire and now of the Weimar Republic. An analogy of the state of Germany, if there ever was one, modernizing but on the foundations of the old. The supplement, however, represented the zenith to which the investigation had reached. A whole page had been dedicated to the investigation, and the people of Berlin going about their daily lives bought into the story again that had been gripping them for almost two weeks. Below a short headline declaring the issuing of the arrest warrant, they printed the statement issued amongst the printing houses of the capital by the Berlin criminal police. People sat in the parks of Berlin, on the trams and the Stadtbahns, in the knipers that filled the corners, at home and in their offices poring over the statement. But if they were looking for answers to the case, as the Zepanics and residents of West End were, they were to be disappointed. The crime committed against the unfortunate child, the person nominated to be the spokesperson at the meeting of the press the previous day had begun, presented the criminal police with a difficult task and above all with an extraordinary responsibility. On the one hand, the public have a legitimate claim to a speedy clarification of the case. 
And on the other hand, as is very often the case, the risk that an accidental chaining of apparent suspicions may under certain circumstances lead to a blameless person being accused as a perpetrator. The decision taken on by the criminal police as to whether the guardian Schultz had to be arrested temporarily and whether this police detention should be maintained and Schultz brought before the judge was made at a stage in which there was still no clarity or certainty about the perpetrator. With no certainty, therefore, and with no material that is already sufficient for a conviction, but nevertheless a suspicion that, according to human judgment, is urgent. The spokesperson continued, and made it evident that the public prosecutor agreed with the thought process and criminal process of the murder commission. The main belief, it was stated, against a stranger committing the crime rested with how the body was disposed. A stranger would have fled as the guard Flada had also theorized, discarding the body and fleeing. However, great time had been taken to bury the body in a cellar, one of the few remaining not to have been cemented, but one that would be cemented soon. Surely a stranger, if it was a stranger, who was to have committed this heinous crime would not have had the time or confidence to bury the girl with such thoroughness when a guard with a dog was also present on the site. So, the spokesperson deduced to the press, a stranger would not have chosen the building block, which was enclosed on all sides as the scene of the crime. As a result, his escape options were very limited, and how could a stranger know immediately that the floor was not cemented, but was to be cemented in the coming days? If it was not for her discovery, it would be quite possible her body, once laying under cement, may never have been discovered. Only someone who knew the site and someone whom Hilda knew could have committed the act. However, Schultz the guard has asserted his innocence and declares himself a victim of the coincidence of unfortunate circumstances. The spokesperson was rounding off the candid interview into the less-than-ideal case against the guard Schultz. He finished with an appeal, not only to the press, but to the public. The criminal police would like the public to know and understand the horrific crime in an assessment that appreciates the difficulties presented within the case. The papers added a request that can only be considered as far as possible, as they added their own voice to the piece and the conclusions drawn by the murder commission. So people read the news and quietly passed judgments to themselves, or debated it loudly over the froth of beer. Some could understand the difficulties that the police had had to overcome in the case. Others, the more reactionaries, stirred up by the tone of the papers, were disgruntled that the world-renowned Gannat had not quite lived up to the expectations placed upon him. And there it was, the creeping vine that eked its way into the cracks, filled the holes, and eventually displaced substance. And it was called doubt. The police's honesty and the scathing natural nature of the press was putting doubt into the minds. No hard evidence had been found. Could the criminal who had committed such a heinous murder still be at large? One stranger amongst the millions within the city, waiting to strike again. Honesty and transparency, however, were not helpful to criminal investigations. Since the Tuesday evening... When Werneberg and Quas had presented their findings of the investigation of the workers to Gannat, Gannat had been sitting on something. 
information it is regarded is highly valuable. The use of such high-value information depends on who the information is most valued to. It was over this that Gannat was most concerned. Shortly after one in the afternoon on Tuesday, Rosemary Otto, 15 years old, and a resident of the affluent area of Kleistrasse, a street that belonged to Berlin's General's Way, a collection of streets that stretch from Kaiser Friedrichplatz and its magnificent church to Augusta Victoriaplatz and its even more impressive Kaiser Wilhelm Gedenknisches Kirche, left school. From the gates of the school she trotted away, wearing a rubber raincoat, one side black and the other red, a blouse decorated with the floral ornamentation of a blouse traditional in Russia and coloured blue with which she matched with blue gloves and a grey skirt. Her school stood just beyond the Bavarian quarter in the Berlin district of Schöneberg, and the walk from the school would take Rosemary Otto along Lutherstrasse, past the famous Scala nightclub and Horsia restaurants, where the rich and wealthy mingled with the powerful and wealthy on truffles, braised cabbage with chicory, mussels and French cheese. However, Rosemary this day never walked the Lutherstrasse. She didn't board the tram that would have sped her home. She just simply vanished. For Gnat, this was a conundrum. He had in the cells far below the wooden floorboards of his office a man that, to the best information that they could gather, was the prime suspect in the case of the missing Hildegard Zeppenick. But now a never schoolgirl. Although Rosemary Otto was significantly taller, at 1.7 metres in height, with brown hair as opposed to Hilda's blonde, and with a haircut trimmed to the length of a gentleman's cut, they did not present much similarities. But nevertheless, another girl had gone missing, and a releasing of information might cause further panic. Gannat had sat on the information as long as he dared, whilst his officers searched and searched until he could no longer, and released a statement for the press to print along with her description. He knew the fallout could be great. The people had been eager for developments in the Hilda case, and now it may seem as there could be a serial kidnapper and murderer walking the streets of Berlin and preying on the young girls of the city. To relieve the pain and anguish it might cause the judgmental press and public, he allowed for the statement, Criminal Councillor Gannat at police headquarters requests information. It was the personal touch, and the touch that showed how important the missing girl was to Gannat. Fireworks lit up the sky, and gunshots rang out across the fairground. It was the evening of an annual marksmanship competition, and the air was hot from the summer heat which had brought out many of the residents from their homes to escape the stifling temperatures indoors as much as it was to watch the men of the Reichsbanner, the veterans, and those who believed themselves a fine shot compete with each other. With the open spaces across from the square in which the event took place, the sounds of small-caliber rifles ricocheted off of the few nearby buildings, but predominantly were lost across the waters of the Dussel. It had been a long way to travel with the public transport, from Hauptbahnhof to Flair. He had waited at Hauptbahnhof for what had felt an age to him. Watching and waiting, he turned the cold metal within his pocket to ease his irritation. His eyes glowered over the blonde bobs, the jet-black curls and fiery red hues of the hair of the women of the city exiting into the night, hoping for the right face to appear amongst the masses gathered at the busy central station of the city. But she never appeared. 
Some faces were close, but they were not the ones he longed for. Eventually, frustration had played a winning hand, succumbing to the disappointment and feeling that tonight might not just be his night. He had chosen to leave, and rather to watch the fireworks at Flair. Now he stood on the banks of the Dussel, the minor companion to the great river that snaked through Central Europe, and had once stood as a natural barrier between the Germanic peoples and the French, but today was a major tributary to the success of a heavily industrialized nation. His luck had not found him here either, he thought. A woman, an Aachenerstrasse, had paid him no heed when he had tried to strike up a conversation with her, and he was left to meander on. He watched the marksmen shoot at the metal targets, at the wooden representations of eagles to which small shots were fired and segmented pieces fell away, he even took some pleasure in the fireworks which lit up the faces of the people around him. He then saw them. One must have only been five years of age, the other no more than thirteen. They were leaving the fair. He watched them as he stalked them through the crowd until they disappeared from view, as they left the bright lights for the dark of a dirt road. He quickened his step and pursued them into the dark. Do you want to make some money? he said to the old girl and flashed a coin in front of her face. Will you go over to the shop there and buy me some cigarettes? I'll pay you. The girls were surprised by the sudden appearance of this man from the night, a man whose eyes appeared too close together, who wore a toothbrush moustache under a nose that curved quickly away from the face and whose ears flicked out at the top. The girl nodded, her eyes blinded by the thought of easy money before her, and she ran quickly away. Then his glare turned quickly to the five-year-old. His hands leapt from his sides, his fingers wired from his thumbs darting toward her, his grasp finding its way with great speed to lay around her neck. She fought as hard as she could, but she was little match for the grown man before her. He watched as her eyes rolled back into her head, and she fell from consciousness. There was little weight to her body, and he quickly carried her into the tall shoots of beans of an allotment that it is summer to climb. There, with her unconscious body laying on the ground, he brought the metal knife from within his pocket, and with one heavy but quick movement, he slit the girl's throat. He felt little. Standing, he hurried back to the dirt track and waited for the older girl to return. He did not need to wait long. She emerged from the darkness, cigarettes in hand, ready to pass them to the mysterious man who appeared from nowhere. As he had done with the first, he pounced again on the second. His hands found their way to her throat and he squeezed, but the girl, older and with more strength, struggled. He lifted her from the ground and carried her into a leak patch next to the beans where the five-year-old now lay dead. Throwing her to the ground, he fell on her, drawing the knife once again, but the struggles of the girl for life were strong and she managed to escape his clutches. Scrambling, she got to her feet and ran, but he was close behind her. She fell with the full forward-leaping momentum of the man against her, and with her on the ground, he raised the dagger once again, this time thrusting it into her several times until she stopped everything. Then, with the girl laying dead on the ground amongst leeks, her younger friend also dead but amongst beans, he left. She was found dazed and confused on Lutestrasse the day after the press had revealed her description and that Gannat was on the case. Not knowing what had happened to her and not knowing how she had got there, a woman wandering the streets had noticed her as a girl matching the description that the paper had only printed the previous evening. Approaching the girl, she could tell something was wrong. 
hurriedly she'd searched for a chapeau officer, which she was fortunately able to find with relative haste and alert him to her discovery. Later that same day, Rosemary Otto was reunited with her parents, but unable to inform the police of where she had been for the last few days. For Gannat, Quas, and Werneberg, the return of Rosemary Otto was a relief, but not able to understand where she had been for four days presented a problem. Could it have been that the same person who had murdered Hildegard Zepernick had swiped Rosemary Otto from the street, but had decided to release her? It was plausible. However, the same overbearing concern kept coming back. It was always how Hilda was buried that had them convinced it must have been Schultz. It was the only explanation, but there it was again, that doubt, and that doubt was now making its way to the public through the press. It did not help either that now Richard Schultz, the watcher, had lawyers who were insisting that the evidence that they had was purely circumstantial and were demanding his release. And a missing girl's story within Berlin was the perfect deflection for their client's argument that he had not harmed the girl, Hildegard Zepernick. It was also on the same day that Rosemary Otto was found, news travelled to Gannat from Dusseldorf. A six-year-old by the name Gertrude Hamacher and a 13-year-old by the name of Louise Lenzen had been found amongst the foliage of an allotment in Dusseldorf. The Foster sisters had been brutally murdered. It was now known that over the course of the year that there had been many reports of a sexual predator and murderer in Dusseldorf. But could it be possible there was a murderer that had ventured to commit heinous deeds across the Reich? Yet again the seller convinced Gannat, Quas, and Werneberg that this could not be the case. On the 28th, the press had grown impatient. News of the progress of the process against the watcher Schultz was little. All that was known was that he and his lawyers were fighting with vigour. To some of the press, specifically reporters at Berlin's Volkszeitung, they had passed the judgment of guilty internally and taken the mantle of judges and investigators of a groundless base when they went to press with is Schultz the killer? Suspicious stains on his suit. And continued to write, Regarding the Zeppernick murder case, we learn that the investigation into the close of the guard Schultz has not yet been completed. It was so delayed because Professor Bruning and his representative Dr. Kreft had driven to an appointment in Stendal. Some suspicious stains have been found on the clothing, but the origin must first be determined. The final approval is expected in a few days. The report finished. Nonsense, came the cry within the police department. The need to sell a story and maintain the interest of a city that had been sold in the morbidly curiosity, as well as worry amongst the population, was becoming greater than fact. The press were writing M for murderer on his back. Quickly, Quas was ordered to release a statement, both for internal and external publication, dispelling the newspaper report. The internal memo he finished with, the Schultz defense lawyer has submitted an application for an appeal date. Days passed and after the rebuke of the police, the press fell silent. The headlines turned to the successful flight of the Graf Zeppelin around the world. To 
the more and more disturbing crimes that flowed out of Dusseldorf and the criminal police there who were starting to look upon their Prussian brethren and Gnat for help in the matter. In Berlin on the 29th, a 13-year-old girl, Gerda Bork, goes missing from Stralauerplatz in the Friedrichshain district. She had lived with her mother opposite the Schlesisches Bahnhof at the very center of where Muscle Adolf and his Immertreu Ringverein were centered. Her mother had sent her on an errand at half past eight in the evening, and the girl, dressed in blue and yellow, had disappeared. A worried mother reported her disappearance to the police, but the information, once again, had been stored away. Perhaps the fear of further doubt while Schultz's lawyers were continuing that to gain the upper hand was too great to immediately release the information. So Gerda Bork was filed away. That is until six days later, when there was little point in withholding the information any longer. For two days since the Sedentag celebrations, on the 2nd of September, Schultz and his lawyers had squared off in court before District Councillor Leuventhal against the prosecutor. The prosecutor, in their final arguments, that the smaller moments of guilt that had been displayed when looked at individually were not enough to press for suspicion of a crime. But if one looked at them in the greater context, a different picture would have to emerge, and therefore Schultz would have to remain in custody. To this the defence jeered in strong opposition to the arguments of the prosecutor, who was desperate for a conviction in a case that had gripped the city. The defence stood and declared as he approached Leuventhal that even in the case of capital crimes such as this murder of little Hildegard Zepanek, the maintenance of imprisonment against the accused must never be used to carry out criminalistic experiments, which would undoubtedly be the case here. The evidence is so meagre that a man should never be put in prison because of it. Now it was the fourth, and Councillor Leuventhal, having taken arguments on board from both sides and personally sat in on interviews with Schultz and Gannat, was ready to make his decision. The investigation and process against Schultz had lasted two and a half weeks since his arrest, and there was a hope that answers now finally might be found. Leuventhal sat in front of the room, began to speak. Herr Schultz, although proof of your innocence has not been provided, the legal requirements for an urgent suspicion of a crime are missing, and the findings that have been put forward to the detention hearing to find you in suspicion of the commitment of a crime are found, as required by law, to be insufficient to justify suspicion against you. The moments that have been presented of your presenting a photograph to the girl, the possibility of giving her a kiss is not sufficient in the view that you are reported an exemplary father of five children and have tried to lead an orderly life. I see that no conclusions can be drawn from the scene of the crime given that so many workers are employed there. I have no choice, therefore, that because of your branding as from the outset, as the presumed perpetrator, I attach that there can be no question or proof of innocence. This method, Leuventhal continued, of accusing persons of serious crimes, then either acquitted or released from prison with the odium of suspicion that they will be released back into the human community, is a method with which must not become a principle in German justice, because it means that people to whom crimes cannot be definitively proven are ultimately stamped as criminals, 
because the suspicion of the crime sticks with their fellow human beings. If Schultz is suspected, he should be put on trial. But if ground for suspicion are not sufficient, the judge must abstain from any judgment if he wants to claim of objectivity for himself. The judicial authorities must be aware of the consequences for all those people who have been acquitted or released from prison, but whose foreheads the judge has put the branding of suspicion on. Leuventhal brought the proceedings to an end and Schultz was allowed to walk free, a proof of innocence and a statement of exemplary parenthood from Leuventhal held within his moral pocket. For the Zeppelinics, it was a blow, not only because according to the logic that had been compiled by the police, Schultz was, as far as anyone could see, the only person that could have been considered the culprit, but it also meant that there was no one else. If Schultz had committed the crime of the rape and murder of their daughter, he was not to be punished. And if he hadn't, the real murderer also got to walk free. The ones being left punished simply was them. The judgment of the Leuventhal was published on the 5th of September, and a day later in the evening edition of the Berliner Volkszeitung, the question was posed, what now for the Zeppenich family? And below a picture. A picture of the family, Wilhelm, Elsa, Kurt, their oldest sister, and Hildegard. A picture of a respectable family of the Neuwest End, the Reichsbank colony, taken in the garden where Hilda liked to play, where her mother had shouted towards her on her final day for playing on the trellis, and where her father, Herr Zeppenich, had sat in the evening with Herr Ash shortly before Hilda almost disappeared forever. Kwas and Werneberg gathered their papers and the pieces that had been handed to them by Gnat that bore his signature, placed them in the main folder with posters from the search and other material they were handed to a secretary who typed them up. Once typed, the thin, almost see-through papers were hole-punched and laid over metal pins of a binding. Werneberg scanned them and noticed a mistake. The secretary had managed on the final piece that had been added to the file a piece that summarized the whole case to spell the name of Ernst Gnat wrong. Werneberg crossed out the mistake, a Z instead of a T, with a blue pencil, and spelled the name of the great man who held an unbelievable record in solving cases, but would not be able to solve this one correctly. For Quas and Werneberg, there was just two jobs left. The first to deliver the reward that had been advertised, Rudolf Bannermann, the brother of Emil, who had since left Berlin to begin a new job elsewhere, was given 200 Reichsmarks for the discovery that his brother had made. Otto Rich, who had shared in such a discovery, received 125. His brother Wilhelm, who had been amongst the men who had first seen the remains of the poor Hilda, got 75. August Steuer, the foreman, who in a panic had ran to Nietzsche's and pale-faced had had to ask the proprietor, Frau Nietzsche, to call the police who along with his fellow foreman, Paul Gansko, received 50 marks. With the reward solemnly handed between the men, Quas and Werneberg now only had to deliver the help file to the main file archives. There was no further evidence to act on, and with the decision of Leuventhal on pursuing the case against Schultz, the case was to be delivered for storage as unsolved. However, it would not be left too long to gather dust 
within the boxes of the archives. Achtung, Achtung. Hier ist die Sendestelle Berlin im Voxhaus. Meine Damen und Herren, auf der Suche nach Hildegard Zeppelin. This has been Achtung History's The Watcher. Produced by the Berlin Tour Guide and presented by Simon J. James. Follow Arctung History on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Arctung History. Visit the website at theberlintourguide.com forward slash Arctung History and support Arctung History on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Arctung History. Arctung History.